He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud? Welcome to Munson's at the Movies. My name is Kyle. I will once again be your host, joined by the rest of the Munson's. Want to give them a wide berth. What is called a born loser? A real Munson. <laughs> and talk a little bit about what's going on in their worlds. This time we'll start with James. <laughs> this is where we enter the cricket sound. Because James, James' life has been crazy busy, and he's been traveling, weddings, and just didn't have enough time to really do the research that would have been needed to, to tackle the episode. So we're going to try to do our best without our trivia master and movie review extraordinaire. Next time, if you're an avid listener and you're angry that James isn't here, get over it and keep fucking listening. So, uh, Rigby. Saw Oppenheimer this past weekend. Really, really loved it made three hours go by in the snap of a finger. So yeah, I mean, if you haven't seen it, go check it out. It's, it's one of Nolan's best. I would say haven't hopped on the Barbie train quite yet, but I know that some of you have love Barbie. Not sure what it's going to take for me to get on that train, but as of right now, I'm not on it. This might be a Munson's first. Did every member of the podcast see Oppenheimer this weekend? Nope. Yes. Kyle didn't. No, nope. oh, Kyle's still waiting. One, no. one loser. I mean, one person no. didn't make it. But how many of you saw Gran Turismo? None of you. Suck it. <laughs> but Kyle, correct me if I'm wrong, but by the time this episode airs, you will have seen Oppenheimer. Yes, that is my commitment. I'm hoping to see it next Monday. I think I'll have seen Gran Turismo. <laughs> That's right. Aubrey. Sad to report that this will be the last time that I get to say I've got nothing going on. What? <laughs> teacher summer is ending. Teacher summer is ending. I have new teacher orientation at the end of this week. Teacher work week is the next two weeks. And then those little bastards come back to my room. I mean, those wonderful kids that I'll be teaching be back in my room. Those goofy bastards are about the only th- good thing I got going in this <laughs> world. They're going to be coming to learn all those Catholic teachings from you, Aubrey. They're very excited. Yeah, I've been using this summer to learn all about Catholicism. And by that, I mean... <clears throat> I also saw Oppenheimer and Barbie to change the subject completely because I've learned nothing about Catholicism. They're great. Watch Stigmata. <laughs> <laughs> Get your gay burning right there. <laughs> you know, you guys are talking about a lot of good films. No one talked about Mission Impossible. Dead Reckoning, part one. Big fan. Big, big fan. Loved it. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. Just, just the last couple of weeks. I, I mean, these summer blockbusters, I know, Rigby, you talked about the last episode of like, Interested to see how they go, you know, a little worried, nothing to worry about. They're crushing. Everything I've seen in the past couple of weeks has been really, really good. Next summer might be a problem unless they uh, get back to work here soon, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Next summer will be a problem. <laughs> we'll just all rewatch Oppenheimer and Barbie. I will tell you, one of my favorite guests is back, and that's Mike Rodmaker. Rod- Mike is born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. He moved to Los Angeles in 2016 to pursue a career in photography and film. His work in those fields is focused on the outdoors, sports, and documentary filmmaking. He's an avid runner, climber, movie nerd, and popcorn enthusiast. That's why he's here. He's just a good person, just an all-around good human. He was previously with us for the Mahershala Ali, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Jim Carrey, and Tony Collette episodes. Four bangers, so we went 
hard left with Seymour Cassell after those last four. But welcome back to the pod, Rod Maker. And how's it going over there, man? Hey, thanks for having me again. Yeah, it's going great. It's good to be back. Yeah, good to, to mix it up with the, the portfolio of actors we're covering here. But yeah, everything's everything's been good. It's been a minute. I went full Barbenheimer this weekend and, and got that whole experience. And it was fantastic for, for summer movies. I think I think they said it was the box office collectively, the fourth largest box office weekend in history. It was like, uh, I think, two million behind third place, three million behind second. And then I'm pretty sure Avengers Endgame had everybody pretty much on it but yeah it was awesome loved it everybody should go see them uh hopefully we'll have by the time the pod releases but yeah things are good been really busy a lot's happened uh since i was on here last i had my fiance move out to la with me uh we got a new place in a new neighborhood we got married nice. we went on the honeymoon we got back and uh yeah it's, it's been a, a busy year since uh Bam. Since we hung out. You've been efficient, sir. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a good year. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Congratulations. Yeah, buddy. Those are cool updates. It's, it's been good. Had some cool stuff on the film front. One premiere a couple months ago for the movie I'd recorded a little while ago. And then it was just another one that uh, was a documentary that I was working on for a little while that we kind of shot a lot for like six months. And then uh, it just kind of went dark for a little bit. I think it was like some funding. And then didn't like really hear much. And then all of a sudden, like they, they rolled that out. So it's been good. Uh, Keeping busy and having fun. And uh, yeah, loving life. No complaints so far. August 3rd, we get into some birthdays. Rigby, what do we got? Yeah, first up, Mr. Martin Sheen, probably best known for playing President Bartlett in The West Wing, but also in some great movies, Apocalypse Now. Um, yeah, just obviously Charlie Sheen and Emilio Estevez's father known for that as well so yeah he's a pretty established dude in hollywood been around a long time definitely has some famous sperm i've turned into actors <laughs> martin, martin sheen's old he's this is he's old can old be my answer so if you've ever seen the movie badlands that was like his first big movie and that was early 70s that'll be my hint this is where james would say he's been old for like 40 years yeah <laughs> <laughs> He's been old for as long as I've done it. Dude, let me do some math. Okay, so the- mathematics. You do your math. I'm gonna I'm gonna blind guess at 83. I I love a good blind guess. 78. 76. 80. Rodermaker nailed it. 83 on the dot. Oh, damn. Always go with your gut, people. That was great. Nice work. <laughs> All right. Next up, we got Evangeline Lilly. Ant Man lost two two things that i have never seen both of those but i know i know that she's famous for that <laughs> didn't see the hugh jackman great real steel real hugh steel jackman that's right she was in that it's a good movie i liked real steel that was a good movie yeah too wasn't she? she was yeah she was in the trilogy she was the love interest most recently famous for ruffling marvel's feathers by saying some anti covid shot things yeah she said yeah. covid stuff right yeah i remember that mm-hmm. i remember that yeah i think she's early 40s so i'm gonna go 41 yeah 43 mm. i was gonna take 42 so i'm gonna stick with it it's man of conviction 45 oh you guys are all so close aubrey you win by prices right rules she's 44 damn good for us peppering it baby so those two were our birthday guesses tonight but i wanted to mention honorable mention mr tony bennett who passed away recently his birthday is also on august 3rd he's a legend I think he died at 96, so he'd be turning 97. 
which is wow. Yeah, Tony Bennett. Tony Bennett was the man. I was a big fan of his. Obviously, a lot of his music ended up in some some famous movies as well. So, R.I.P. to Tony Bennett, and happy birthday to Martin and Evangeline. We're here at episode eighty-seven, and we had five actors we threw onto the wheel. That included Bill Nye, Helena Bonham Carter. Or was it Will Ornette? Nor was it Greg Kinnear. But the the wheel did select Seymour Cassell, who. Mike Rodmaker decided to join us to talk about. And Seymour is one of the more prolific actors we've covered recently. He's got 219 IMDb credits. I'm fairly confident that number is not going to grow anytime soon unless someone is using his likeness because he passed away a few years ago. And we'll kind of talk about his career as a prolific character actor. His early TV days, he did 44 TV shows early in his career. So that's a basically 25% of his entire filmography just right there. Before we get into the minutiae, we always start with a little actor trivia. Since James is not here this time, he has anointed Mr. Case with the trivia mantle. So he's going to try to stump us Fast and Furious style. I've got three trivia facts. Two of them are going to be true. One of them is going to be about a Fast and Furious character. Here's fact number one. He and his mother lived in Panama for a short period of time because his stepfather won ownership of a nightclub in a game of craps. Fact number two. He was a gang member prior to joining the Navy and getting his life together. Fact number three. He is responsible for giving Guns N' Roses guitarist Slash his nickname. Oh my god, that third one is bananas. Wow. Mm. Those three are, those are amazing. I love all those. I think one and three are true. I think the gang one is... Just because, uh, just because, Craig, you're doing it, I'll go ludicrous. <laughs> I'm only doing that because you mentioned Lud- you. That's your guess for every Fast and Furious character. So let's do it. I appreciate you more than you know, buddy. Yep. Everybody knows that Kurt Russell's father was a notorious gambler, and so I'm I'm gonna have to go with fact number one. That's the lie, and that was Kurt Russell. I also think it was number one. I will not take the bait for number two based off my history of guessing. I, I will go with number one, and I think of Seymour Cassell. I I could easily get him mixed up with Bad Bunny, which is my guess. <laughs> I'm pretty confident that the first one is true. I think three is false, but I can't think of which Fast and Furious actor would have done that. So I've got to go maybe two. And let's go... Ronda Rousey. Let's go Jason Statham. <laughs> Being that uh, I'm not able to vote, I will give you guys what I would have said, even though I I know the correct answer, but I'm going to stick with my guns. And my guess was going to be that fact number three was a lie, because that was actually about former first-round draft pick, NBA journeyman, former Minnesota Timberwolf, and current Boston Celtics assistant coach, Sam Cassell. Sam Cassell. (laughs) Sam Cassell, legend. Can't waste a joke. I wrote that a few weeks ago, so I can't not say it. I love Sam Cassell. Everybody's got their votes in, and it looks like we had two people pick number one, two people pick number two, and no one picked number three besides me. Fact number one, he and his mother lived in Panama for a short period of time because his stepfather won ownership of a nightclub is actually true. His biological father was a nightclub owner that his mother performed burlesque in. They divorced shortly after Seymour's birth, and his mother was remarried to a master sergeant in the U.S. Army Air Force. Family moved to Panama where his stepfather won ownership in a nightclub during a game of craps. Next one, he was a gang member prior to joining the Navy, then getting his life together. That is also true. After his mother filed for divorce, 
from her second husband in the late 1940s. She sent Seymour to live with his grandmother from Panama back in Detroit, where he soon joined a gang. He later said at 17 he was given a choice, join the Navy or go to jail. He picked the military, and after three years of service and a brief stint in college, he returned to Detroit, where he built props for a local theater company and took small acting gigs. And that leaves fact number three, which is the reason I'm actually doing trivia tonight, because I sent James this trivia fact today. Responsible for giving Guns N' Roses guitar slash his nickname is actually true. Seymour's son, Matthew, grew up very close friends with Slash from Guns N' Roses. Slash spoke very fondly of Seymour in his autobiography and said that Seymour gave Slash his nickname because, quote, I was always in a hurry and I was always scheming. I was always hustling, this and that. He always saw me on the go and on the fly. Seymour Cassell is responsible for naming Slash from Guns N' Roses. So that's awesome. As James put it in his text, this guy's life is fascinating. All facts are true tonight. Wow. I'm adding a, a point or two to his pop culture impact because I did not know that, and I think that is worthwhile. I had to confirm that on three different three different articles before I could send it to James because I'm like, that can't be true. I know Rod. Ma- I think Rod Maker, you and I all listened to that same NPR interview with him and Terry Gross, and he talked about how his he's pretty sure his his stepdad was up to some nefarious illegal activities in like the Bronx when he acquired that said nightclub or whatever it was. Yeah. So he's like, ah, that's what he, just what he told people, but I'm pretty sure he was doing some legal shit. That was a good little like 15, 20 minute listen NPR mm-hmm. interview on encourage listeners to look that one up. All right, Case. Well, you got two segments in a row here. This is first time in months in history for you. It tell us a little bit about his snapshot in box office history. And I've got the first movie, don't I? <laughs> uh, you sure do. And Shut I'll the probably fuck up. I'll- I'll probably retire. I'll probably retire <laughs> at about nine four nine fifteen and go to bed. You guys, let me know how the episode goes. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> this was a frustrating box office to put together, and I would say the number one most frustrating one of all time. Damn. Uh, aside from the total amount of credits this dude has, it proved very difficult to find complete box office data for his films. And now, complete would include film budget, opening weekend. U.S. box office, world box office, and his fan and critic ranks. And as you said, he has over 200 credits. I was only able to find complete profiles for 24 movies. That is easily explained, though, because of the films he reporting didn't do a lot of data early in his career and the amount of independent films that he's been involved with. So it's not an indictment on him. It just makes it frustrating to pull some things together. Films where I was able to complete a box office analysis, things don't look all that good for our guy tonight. He was in 35 movies that lost money, which is roughly 80% of the films that I could find data for. <laughs> that's bad. Yeah, that's not going to help him. And to further illuminate his box office snapshot and highlight his love of indie films is that 15 movies that he's been in have world gross less than $100,000. And his average film budget is $11.4 million per film, which is dead last in our ranks by over $4 million. <laughs> his love for indie film is not serving him well in our rankings. Speaking of ranks, here are the ones that we do compare everybody against. So he is, in his average film budget, which I just said, he's 87th out of, Kyle. 87. There you go. Total box office is $939 million, which is 85th. His star meter ranking is 12,641, which is dead last by a mile, with William Atherton being number 86 
at 4,820. Oh, triple. Damn. I feel like that was not really fair. Listen, listen, he's dead, okay? Let's like try not, let's really knock fair. let's not knock him too much. <laughs> but I bet Philip Seymour Hoffman's is pretty high comparatively, and that man is also dead. Rest in peace. That's not also a fair comparison. <laughs> is this the only dead the only other dead actor we've done besides him? Is that right? William Hurt. Not dead at the time. William Hurt wasn't dead then, I don't think. Yeah. We killed him. Let's also not forget to put the asterisk on his box office that I assume he is one of the older actors you all have done, and inflation pumps that up a ton. So let do keep that one in mind as a, as a little caveat to yeah. these numbers. Great point. Great point. Outside of like Michael Caine and Maggie Smith, those are probably the two oldest. Ron Maker, this is not an economics lesson. We're not back in school yet. <laughs> Save that for a couple of weeks. His critic rank is 58th at 52.1%. His fan ranking, I was shocked at how low this is because of the types of movies he's in, but he's 80th with a 53.5. His box office metrics is 86th and 64th, with his best performing movie probably being Indecent Proposal, which had a $38 million budget and a whopping $267 million world gross. His overall rank is number 85. Wow. Oh, he's not dead last. Well, that's shocking. No, dead last is wow. Oh, come on. <laughs> he's not alive. <laughs> that's fucked up. That is. We're here to celebrate this man's grave, not piss on it. <laughs> yes. You're right. You're right. So he comes in ranked 85th, just slightly ahead of Chaz Palminteri, and way ahead of Jimmy Buckets Belushi. Biggest supporter of the Munsons. Yeah. Of anyone we've covered. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> he could use the boost. That's why. He's still my favorite. Thoughts on uh, on the box office? Not shocking. Uh, yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah, older actor who does independent film. Tracks. Yep. You know, what actually keeps him out of last is he was wildly respected by some really good directors. And as we'll talk about, especially with, with Cassavetes, everybody loves what that guy did. And he brought Cassell with him. So that, that relationship easily puts him above Belushi and, and Palmateri and, and helps his, his critic ranking. Yeah, and those John Cassavetes movies, are, they're like critically acclaimed, but I don't think they were, any of them were like really box office like hits. Smashes. So, yeah. I wondered if one might like be sneaky popular. We just didn't know. That would have been the only thing that would have made sense. But he didn't even catch, like, the West. He did a lot of Wes Anderson movies. He didn't even catch the Wes Anderson, like, the real big ones of those. Not really surprising that it's so bad. Well, it's a good foundation case. You've laid the land. Let's see where he matches up in the 85 out of 87 when it's all said and done, baby. Early days. We, thought you, I mean, Case mentioned a lot of this already. Born in Detroit, 1935. Uh, I think the first... Michigan-based born actor we've covered in 87, I believe, unless somebody can remind me of somebody else. What about the Kid Rock episode? Uh, nope, hard pass. As much as I want to watch Joe Dirt, I don't need to watch it for that, so I'm good. <laughs> Bob Seger episode? He said that so fast and so serious. Uh, nope, hard pass. <laughs> Wasn't crying, just a little dirty man. <laughs> 
so he gets a couple bonus points for me, a sneak peek of my Munson meter, knowing he's a Detroit guy. But as Case mentioned, his mom was in, in the performing arts. She was a burlesque dancer. He first got on the stage when he was like three and a half years old. Like she was touring all over the country. And so while he's born in Detroit, he's lived in a lot of different places. And like, like uh, Case talked about, the stepdad who was, you know, Air Force, he's in the Navy. Like the guy's lived in many different places throughout his life. But as Case alluded to, his first entry into the world of entertainment was doing props and some stage work there. And I would, what I would assume was in the 50s, early, early to mid 50s. There's not a lot of information about him out there. I mean, I, not shockingly, because he doesn't have a huge profile, his Wikipedia is not jam packed with information to be able to find about, about Seymour. But that's why people come to us so we can unearth some of these things and help you learn a little bit more about the guy. His first role ever was shockingly, or not shockingly, on a Cassavetes production, uncredited, on the movie Shadows in 1958. It's one of, I think, at least four, if not five, collaborations with Cassavetes. Anybody know the specific number? Is it five? I think it's five, right? I believe it's five. Yeah. I know Steve Buscemi, right? I'm trying to make sure I get that right. It's not Buscemi, even though apparently his Italian family says that. He talks quite a bit about their relationship with Cassavetes. We'll get into more. As we dig into some more of the Cassavetes films, we can talk about that. On Shadows, I believe I read a story that Cassavetes saw a young, aspiring uh, Steven Spielberg lurking around the set, and he asked Spielberg what he wanted to do in film, and he said he wanted to be a director. So Cassavetes asked him if he would come and direct Cassavetes in his scene for like two days. So he worked as a uh, as an assistant and a assistant director uh, on that movie at Cassavetti's request. The man had an impact getting one of the best directors of a generation, mm-hmm. getting his start. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. But again, a lot of TV work, a lot of like not so notable films in this period. But some of the bigger ones we'll mention when you're talking about guys got almost 220 credits, kind of hit some of the highs of the highs when it comes to ratings, especially on Rotten Tomatoes. So. Film like Too Late Blues, he played Red the Bassist in 1962. I noted he played the board man in The Nutty Professor. I did not know there was a Nutty Professor from the 60s, something I learned in this episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the Jerry Lewis. Yeah, Jerry Lewis. Yeah, that was a huge hit in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's got really high ratings, but he apparently very bored on screen. Again, smaller role, but between 1959 and 1972, he was on 18 different TV shows from a one to two episode spot sample doing the work little here little here right the nothing that probably paid a ton but at least getting his face out there i swear this dude looked 75 when he was 30 like from the the early stills that i saw we'll talk about faces here in a moment but he lists some impressive titles there one of them being batman with the mustache that guy can grow, I bet you he was a villain in one of those episodes. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, because you got the Twilight Zone, you got My Three Sons, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Batman, and many others. Yeah. We'll talk about it here in a minute when we get to Minnie and Moskowitz, but my man could could rock a stash there in the 60s and 70s. It was thick, baby. Thick. I looked high and low for that Twilight Zone episode. I love the Twilight Zone. So I was ready to mm-hmm. just watch a couple of those and see where it was going. I looked, I, I spent a good amount of time looking for that episode only to find out that he was uncredited and <laughs> he was like, just, he wasn't even named in the episode. So I didn't even get to watch it. Yeah. Oh, wow. He wasn't even the board man in, in that one. Uncredited. 
So I couldn't really find him in the episode. So it was just like, all right. So I didn't get to watch any Twilight Zone. <laughs> That's the Munson meter taking a, a dip all of a sudden. Huh? Yep. His first recurring TV role was in 12 O'Clock High. He played multiple characters in 65 to 66. He played five episodes of that. So again, it's a little bit different taking a, a I guess, a more consistent role in a, in a production. That's, that's important to note. And then he played three different characters on the FBI from 65 to 67. The show, not the crime-breaking outfit that came from Killers of the Flower Moon. Right? Is that how the FBI started, right? Yep. Or so they say. Allegedly. 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 (laughs) What we're going to call his first major role was another Cassavetes film, a film where he came out of the gate and got actually got an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor, and that was his role as Chet in Faces from 1968, and Case, once again. Faces is a 1968 indie film written and directed by the aforementioned John Cassavetes. It stars John Marley, no relation to Bob, Gina Rowlands, who is Cassavetes' wife in real life, Lynn Carlin, and the man of the hour, Seymour Cassell. The film was very well received by both critics and fans, scoring 85% and 87% respectively. In addition, the film has held up in its popularity and critical reception. I think one reason that it has held up is that Cassavetti shot this film in cinema verite style. It's also called observational cinema. To me, when I was watching it, it felt like it had a very documentary style to it. Here's the plot. John Marley's character, played by Richard Forst, He's a complete curmudgeon. I mean, the film opens with him being an asshole. He goes out after work with some friends, and he fraternizes with a call girl named Jean Rapp, played by Rollins. And after that evening with her, he abruptly tells his seemingly happy wife that he's miserable and he wants to, wants to get a divorce. The rest of the movie is spent following him and his new friend Jeannie, while Forrest's wife Maria, played by Lynn Carlin, and her friends head down to the Whiskey Go-Go, where she meets Chet, played by our boy Seymour. Cassell plays a freewheeling, flirtatious guy who Marie and her friends pick up at the bar and invite him back to their house to listen to records. Eventually, all the friends leave and Cassell and Maria have an affair. The fun romance and chemistry between Maria and Chet is short-lived as Chet wakes up and finds her unconscious, having taken a bottle of sleeping pills in a suicide attempt. After a wildly manic and confusing series of events, Chet revives Maria, and shortly after, her husband John returns home while Chet slips out the window and down the roof. I personally loved Cassell in this role. As James would say, he's a complete snack. Clearly the most handsome guy in the movie and a no-brainer for the women at the bar to take him home. I kind of felt like he had a very Sam Rockwell energy when he was mixing it up and dancing and and singing, and, and as I later found out in some interviews, he was making up all the words that he songs because I couldn't afford music. So he was he was very charming and entertaining while doing that. But Rigby, why don't you set pop in some positivity before the rest of us potentially don't? <laughs> mm-hmm. I think Seymour Cassell is awesome in this. This is my favorite role of his. It's his first role, which is crazy. But yeah, you nailed it. Like exactly what they were looking for for this role. I think he was perfect for it. I just love the tense feeling of the movie. You also nailed it, Craig, when you said it was kind of like a documentary. That's spot on. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of this. This is my favorite Cassavetes movie, too. I think the improvisation side of it was fascinating to watch. I didn't know much about Cassavetes, so digging into that was interesting. And you could tell 
Seymour was just kind of rolling with the punches to make yep. to make, kind of make magic happen on screen. I, my problem is, I think I just watched this like I watched this late at night, Ooh. and I don't think it was the right time for me to watch this. Like it's a, it's a mood film, right? You got to be in the right headspace to watch something like this. And I I think I would have served better watching like a Stuck on You at that moment in time. You know what I mean? <laughs> definitely depressing. It's definitely like you know you see a marriage crumbling like right before your very eyes. That's a hard watch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's an auteur's film. The one thing I'll say is I think. This is a theme that I notice is that when Seymour Cassell is given the chance to be like charismatic and almost like the center of attention, he really, really excels. He does. Mm-hmm. And there's not a ton, at least of what I watched, that I got to see him do that. But there were a couple and that was always what was catching my eye. Oh, yeah. When he's given a role to take a bite out of a chunk out of more than just like his three scenes, I think he actually does pretty well. But they're just kind of few and far between. Yeah. He's like a little shot of energy in this. Mm-hmm. I struggled with this one. Acevedes is one of those guys, one of those directors that I've been kind of dabbling in over the past little bit of time. Learning about him kind of just at my own pace. Woman Under the Influence, I saw, love that. It's just <laughs> like breathtakingly good. But I also learned from that that his movies are tougher to sit down and watch like you got to be ready to do what it is that you're doing mm-hmm. it's not just like oh i'm oh, i'm just gonna put faces on let's let's go no you gotta be like all right i'm about to watch a movie we're doing this today <laughs> this yeah. is my first cassavetti's film and it probably needed oh, a, a better warm-up <laughs> to him so i just wasn't ready there's a lot of elements that i like just in filmmaking but that cassavetti's is great i love that it's I love that it's like there's a lot of dialogue. I love that he lets the scenes breathe. So they're long scenes. Mm-hmm. I love all that stuff. It draws out tension. It allows you to really like get a space for not just the characters, but for what they're trying to get across. I feel like the improvisation is where this movie starts to show it seems a little bit. I struggle with that part. When they were more focused on like where they were at in their relationships, I was locked in. Yeah. When they were singing and dancing, I was like, ah, we're like all right let's kind of get back to where we're going so i i struggle with that balance it's one of those though where i'm just like you still see the greatness in it yeah it's you still see how great the movie is and how great it looks and what cassavetes is doing and what the camera's doing and how he's pulling all this stuff together it's remarkable just the filmmaking of it if you're listening to this podcast you should probably watch that movie on max regardless of how you're going to feel about it I thought the best people in this movie were Seymour Cassell and Gina Rollins. Yes. And I'd be willing to bet that everybody else were stage actors, which is why the improvisational parts that Aubrey's talking about kind of fell apart at the seams. Seymour did a little bit right, but I mean, this group, this dude grew up on street corners learning how to talk trash with his friends, so improving's mm-hmm. piece of cake. Oh, yeah, it's easy for him. Gina Rollins is a beast. Here's a question for you, Rigby, a little trivia. Since he was nominated for an Oscar here for this film in 68, do you know who he lost the Oscar to in 69? Dustin Hoffman. Nope. Uh, that was the year after that, actually. Midnight Cowboy. Yeah. I don't. Who? Jack Albertson, and the subject was Roses. Oh, wouldn't have known that. I've never seen it, and it was Daniel Massey for Star, Jack Wilde for Oliver, and then Gene Wilder for The Producers. Nice. Were the other nominees. I was just interested to see who we lost to that year. Like, if it was a stacked field or if it you know one of those probably had more screen time than he did that's yeah because you know he shows up two-thirds of the way through the film and he gives it a jolt whether or not you like the improvisational jolt he certainly gives it a new energy that makes it feel a little bit different this movie was um sort of pioneering for its time mm-hmm. i think that's probably why it was 
so critically acclaimed because no one really had seen sort of a gritty look at a marriage like this. Mm-hmm. Overall, you guys, I didn't actually like this movie. <laughs> I can't see why people love it for how, how uniquely it was shot and how Cassavetti pulled it together. I had a hard time following the rambling and incoherent plot lines and conversations. It felt like I was the only sober person in a room of rambling drunk people, which is actually pretty accurate. I couldn't tell you where I land on this, Kyle. I know you usually ask us on these things, but I'm going to be well below the 80. I'm glad I watched it, but it wasn't a film that I loved. Fortunately, though, the version of this film that I watched was only two hours long versus the original six-hour version that Cassavetti tried to turn into the studio. Jesus. (laughs) Sounds about right. Yeah, it's got the 85-87 mark, so it's pretty high across the board. I think Cassavetes was one of the first directors to like have multiple versions of a film. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't be shocked. He's like known for that. He's like the killing of the Chinese bookie, I'm pretty sure has like four different versions. Yeah, I read that a bunch about Cassavetes as well. It's, yeah. That dude's fascinating and and I sure do appreciate everything that you know, all the advances that he made. And and I'll tell you this, you guys, real quick before we get moving on. A lot of the earlier works that I watched with Cassell in, I see people like Tarantino and, and other prominent directors now doing a lot of the same shit. And you can tell that they're heavily influenced. And I'll talk about a movie here in a little bit, The uh, Game of Death, that I was watching that and I was like, shit, this feels like a Tarantino movie. Is Death Game also Cassavetes? Uh, no. Again, he's in a lot of movies, so we're not going to name most of them, but... Fast forward three years, the next big one is Minnie and Moskowitz. He played Seymour. Character's name wasn't Seymour Cassell, but character's name was Seymour. Another Cassavetes film. And like I mentioned earlier, this is one where uh, it became very clear. I kind of got lost in the sauce because I was so enamored by his mustache in this film as a leading man. (laughs) (laughs) that I almost like lost what was going on around me because this this mustache he can grow. It's so incredible. I, I was so impressed. Cassavetes put him in meaningful roles in all of his films there in the 70s, and I think it goes to show how much he believed in his craft. I have a feeling, based on the stuff I read about those two, that his character being named Seymour was just a joke between the two of them. He's like, fuck it. I'm just going to call your character Seymour. And he's like, that's brilliant. Let's do it. Doesn't he play like a parking lot attendant or a guard or something like that? Yeah, he's, and he's, he's the main focus of the film. It's pretty cool to watch. Yeah, I've never seen it. It's streaming free on YouTube that people can check out. I don't know if it's probably not illegal, but it's on there. People want to watch it. <laughs> and then five years later, another Cassavetes film, the one that Rigby just talked about, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, played Mort. I like this movie a lot. Uh, ben Gazaria, Gazaria, I think is his name. He's so good in this as the main character. It's exactly how it describes. He gets in too deep when he uh, is involved in the, in the killing of a Chinese bookie. <laughs> Very literal. (laughs) Seymour Cassell is... He's a gangster, right? Yeah, his role is minimal in this, because Ben Gazaria is, like, in every scene, he, like, commands the movie. But I like the killing of Chinese bookie. It's on HBO Max. I know there's at least three versions of this. Mm -hmm. It's, like, the director's cut, the theatrical cut, and then some other version. (laughs) The Cassavetes cut. Yeah. (laughs) The mustache cut. Another highly rated film. 79 and 83 across the board. I mean, all these Cassavetes films are very well regarded, highly regarded. Death Game, 1977 case alluded to it earlier. So there's a couple interesting points about this movie. Number one, when the movie started, it starts with a very, like, catchy but unfamiliar song, very similar to what a Tarantino film would do. The story of this film is that 
rich San Francisco guy whose family is away for the weekend. And these two hippie girls show up. They basically convince him to let them in the house, at which point they proceed to seduce him and terrorize him. And as I'm watching it, I'm like, God dang, this, this story seems familiar. After some research, I realized that in, I think, 2015, around there, Keanu Reeves started a movie called Knock Knock, which is a remake of this movie. I didn't know that. I didn't either. And then what made me laugh, though, is as I was looking that up, it's around the 17-minute mark, this movie goes into a full-blown threesome with ironic 70s porn music. (laughs) That's what happens in Knock Knock, too, right? With Ana de Armas, right? Yeah, but it doesn't happen that fast. There's adult films where threesomes don't happen as fast as they do in this movie. It was the 70s, man. They couldn't they didn't wait around back then. But it was hilarious to be watching it and hear that stereotypical 70s porn music kick in. You guys know my stance on spoilers. I'm normally not a big I don't care about spoilers, but I am not going to give a spoiler away in this film. I will encourage you to watch it because everybody said the ending is crazy and I loved it. Teaser. This movie's interesting to watch. It's not a great movie, but I think you'll get a kick out of the end. Teaser, baby. Teaser. Nine other films he did between 68 and 83. So he's kind of busy during that time. Our highest critic score is supposed to be John Cassavetti's Love Streams. It has got very high ratings. Unfortunately, it doesn't have very high accessibility (laughs) because it's not streaming anywhere. Ron Maker probably wouldn't even be able to run down a DVD copy from Malaysia for this. So (laughs) I forgot. Aubrey was going to do this one, but we couldn't track it down. But I mean, it's got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. I was interested to see what we would think about it. But another Cassavetti's film there in the early 80s. And then we've got Eye of the Tiger from 1986. Two significant things about this movie. Number one, this song was so badass that they actually made a movie out of it. And it has nothing to do with the movie, but it still works. (laughs) And most importantly, I think this and Lethal Weapon 2 were the last movies that Gary Busey did before he had his motorcycle accident, which kind of changed him forever. And mm. when you watch this movie, Busey, he's fun to watch. And I love Seymour Cassell in this as well, because he's playing like a corrupt sheriff, and he kind of leans into it, and it's almost like a boss hog type character who, like... He sits around in his office without his shirt on. I did watch this case because he takes out a, a whole biker group, right? Like it's all these dudes. Yeah. Yes, I did watch this. I was shocked at how much I enjoyed it. And some of it does line up with the lyrics, but I don't think it's a biographical film about the song. I'm with you. It's it's higher than it's like 20 and 40 ratings that it has on Rotten Tomatoes. I actually found it enjoyable. Mm-hmm. It's screaming on Tubi. I think it's worth checking out if somebody's interested in a mid-80s yeah. Gary Busey film. Tin Men, 1987, he played Cheese. And then the movie I started my Cassell watching with was Colors, a rewatch from 1988, because everybody knows that song. Colors, Colors, Colors. Spoiler, uh, Seymour Cassell is in one scene as a fellow cop in the room with them, and that is it. So don't watch it for Seymour Cassell, because you're not going to get much out of it, but it's a good film. Otherwise, I enjoy it. Yeah, I love Colors. That's a great movie. Sean Penn is awesome in that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good uh, gang law enforcement film mm-hmm. if you're looking for that, but do not go for it for Seymour because if you blink, you'll miss him. 
Mm-hmm. Seymour Cassell has that iconic big ass smile. He has like one of the biggest smiles I've ever seen. And he's just got this big fucking grin on his face in the middle of the, the room during a training. So you can't miss him at that moment. But I kept looking for him. He just wouldn't pop up after that. So going to our lowest critic score, you get to see him play a, diff- a little bit of a different role than a cop. In Johnny B. Good, he plays Wallace from 1988, and Ron Maker drew this one. And what a what a doozy! Yes, this one might be like the lowest critic score, but I I don't think it was unenjoyable to watch. Quick synopsis here: this the story follows Johnny Walker, great character name, who's the the top high school quarterback recruit in the nation. He wins the state title, and then after. He wins that. He's he's basically getting recruited by all the NCAA schools across the country. And mind you, like NCAA violations in the 80s were much less in the news than they are now. So uh, <laughs> a little ahead of its time and, and quite on, on the nose here. But yeah, Seymour Castle comes in early to midway through. He's the, the recruiter for Piermont, a private school that the head coach uh, kind of has a little deal with where if they can get him Johnny he will uh, secure the head coaching job at this college institution for himself it's not quite a coming of age story but it's not far off of that and we're Johnny's kind of trying to learn what his values are in this process of going to school a long-term girlfriend Georgia played by Uma Thurman which I think was her second movie mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so brand new for her um, she's going to the, the local state college. Uh, and then Leo, the backup quarterback, and his best friend is played by Robert Downey Jr., uh, also one of his uh, his earlier roles there. Yeah. There's a lot to really like about it. The plot just doesn't really pull you along. Like, the stakes are just so low, <laughs> I'll be honest. Eking through and trying to figure out what's important, making some mistakes, as all high school teenagers do. Seymour Cassell is, is really in this for, like, three scenes, probably maybe maybe a grand total of five to 10 minutes. Like it's, it's not a huge role for him. He doesn't catch the eye. Honestly, like Robert Downey Jr. Kind of steals this movie mm-hmm. and just kind of some of his expressions. He says he's such a goofball on this one, which is a lot of fun to watch. Like it would be a good one to watch if it was on TV and you were drinking a beer on a Friday. I'm not going out of my way for this one. Yeah, you can see why the critics score kind of has it lower. I just I don't think that the there were really a ton of questions answered and the the whole thing is a little bit uh, predictable. Cassell is fine in his role, but I would say that's probably the best way to describe is is fine. <laughs> that's a compliment. I'm so glad we covered Seymour Cassell so I could finally watch this monstrosity that is weirdly entertaining. <laughs> yeah, I I was just going to say I don't know why this is a zero i i enjoy this movie it's like not another teen movie before not another teen movie was a thing like it it's and it's got all the who's who of the 80s with anthony michael hall and the principal like it's a fun movie i'm telling you it's fun yeah. it's, it's like the program like you gotta just like if you've ever seen the program it's a terrible movie about college football this might as well be the terrible movie about high school football you just got to let go of your expectations when you watch this movie. <laughs> like yeah, this. there you go. <laughs> so, Rigby, have you read some of the reviews on uh, on Rotten Tomatoes? <laughs> I haven't, but I, I just saw that it was a zero. and I, I Let me read you a couple critic ones. First one from your boy Roger Ebert. Ooh, I like him. The people who made this movie should be ashamed of themselves. That's his. <laughs> Hal Hinson from the Washington Post said, if Chuck Berry were dead, he'd be spinning in his grave. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not if they paid him 
Chuck Berry loved that money. Keith Garlington said, Johnny B. Good is still a bad movie, and its faults stand out even more today, and that was last year. So he's he was on that. Wow. And then Matt Brunson said, the worst football flick ever made, which is a bold accusation. That's not true. Because, yeah, there's some bad... There's not a good football movie, so I, I could... Yeah, I get that. And Guillermo Altera says, an insufferable comedy. So people did not like this movie. They're wrong. I will say, when I was... I watched this one with my wife and I was I was kind of riding the 80s train. I kind of dig that nostalgia and, you know, kind of the style of the time. And we're like maybe 30% through and she just gives a thumbs down. He goes, okay. <laughs> I love that energy. <laughs> I will agree and, and respectfully disagree with you. I will agree. I think this movie was ahead of its time because about four or five years later, we get blue chips. Mm. This movie, I, I think, probably created some interest in that. And I would say, for my personal taste, Paul Gleason was the best part of this movie. Really? I love that coach. Okay. That's why you got to love this movie. He's just like the like the total jerk from the 80s. Like He's, in, he's like mm-hmm. in every movie he's in. I love that guy. If you put me on an abandoned island and said, Kyle, I'm going to force you to watch one of these movies over and over again and for eternity, I will pick this over faces 100% of the time, and it's not even close. There's <laughs> not enough. even remotely yeah. close. I'm Johnny B. Gooding forever. Boy, you really painted Rigby into a corner on that. I do like the evolution of this Desert Island game. Oh, yeah. What's <laughs> the one movie that would be absolute torture if you were all stranded on a desert island. I like this game. <laughs> well, let's see if we can top it with a different Seymour Cassell film by the end of the episode. How about that? <laughs> you know how Rigby's always like, let's talk about our favorite movie and favorite role. I want to I hear the, the film role that you would absolutely hate to be stuck with and have to rewatch over and over again <laughs> on an abandoned <laughs> island. That's what I want to hear. The exact opposite. Johnny be good. I don't the Chuck Berry element doesn't really make any sense to me. I think you could have just named it like football recruiting gone bad and it would have been fine, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least you you got a, a hilarious one with Robert Downey Jr. doing eccentric weird shit on screen. I still don't get half of his role, but it, it stands out. It sure does. That was most of his uh roles in the eighties if you've ever seen like Yeah. Yeah back to school or less than zero he's just a goofball Mm -hmm. so 13 years until our next review and so between 88 and 2001 he's busy he does he plays a couple characters on matlock three episodes of that in 88 in 89 i noted from listening to npr you know he talked about john cassavetes died in 1989 of psoriasis and he was close to and because that happened he essentially stopped participating in all alcohol and drugs and apparently i didn't know this and it makes a lot of sense now when you think about like other than the cassavetes films he really wasn't in much of anything that was big he said basically he was just the fun drunk in the 70s and 80s like he just drank a lot he wasn't violent or angry he was just unpredictable people didn't really want to work with him because of it like he just wanted to make people laugh but they're like they're probably like let's get this drunk off our set like this isn't fun for us at the end of the day so I thought that was an important context for why he wasn't doing a whole lot more big stuff there in the 70s and 80s, because he was kind of a pain he has to deal with, it sounds like. Interesting. And those are his words. That's not like me making shit up from a, an article somewhere. It's him. He was like, yeah, I was just a fun drunk. And I stopped after John died because I needed to kind of get my life together. Everyone was drunk in the 70s and 80s. 
Those two must have been so close, man. Well, after cleaning up his act, he went ahead to get murdered by wolves in White Fang in 1991 as Skunker. I think the second movie I watched. <laughs> Skunker? <laughs> I needed something I could watch with my son around. Yeah. And he could kind of watch this with... However, this is now the second movie since I've joined the podcast, which Kyle has spoiled a major part of the movie in the show notes. <laughs> so I had no idea. Like, he dies in the first, like, 25 minutes. And, like, I mean, you don't really know what's coming unless you know what's coming. So I was literally like, <laughs> I guess he dies. His character's kind of fun. His character's very fun, and he's, he's like a sweet... He's a real sweet character in the film, and it's kind of dark when he gets... His, <laughs> his lead dog kind of gets pulled away by a bunch of wolves, and he goes after him silly enough and ends up yeah i mean it's alluded to these murdered by wolves you don't see it but he doesn't show up again he doesn't appear at any point in time so i think it's like the only movie he has on disney plus and it's actually not bad i'm glad i watched that, that movie <laughs> is wild skunker yeah that's an awesome character name by the way too skunker it's fantastic yeah it is that is i don't know if that's what family movies were like mm-hmm. in the early 90s that was 100 percent a family movie this movie goes hard yeah it does. <laughs> I don't make them like they used to. This movie was this. It's not bad. It's a, it's. If you like this kind of movie, you'll love this movie. Like it's one of those type of things. Mm-hmm. Not gonna win any like new converts, but it was a good time. It's a good story. I, honestly, I would have liked a few more like this from Seymour Cassell. I probably would have given him a few more points because I think these films are actually kind of nice. Nice change of pace. Probably would have helped his box office snapshot too. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, 92, we've got that he uh, auditioned for Mr. Pink for Buscemi's role in Reservoir Dogs. That's crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah, Tarantino, I'm thinking, was just reaching out and thinking, man, I like this guy. I want to give him something. But, I mean, Buscemi's a no, it's a no-brainer, and it's a, it's a fun connection for the two of them just because mm-hmm. of the, the five films that they've done together. He and Harvey Keitel, even their names sound alike. They always reminded me of each other. Harvey Keck tells a much better oh, yeah. than Seymour Cassell. Yeah. I don't know what it is about him, but they just always reminded me of each other. So it would have been interesting to see those two in the same movie. It's a, it's like an attitude, I think. Yep. They both have a particular attitude on screen. I don't, I don't know how else to say that. Yeah, they could, they're both like gangsters, you know? They're swagger. Yep. There's some like swagger, swagger too. Yeah. 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 Can't really replace anybody in that movie because it's damn near perfect. But he would have in that movie. Seymour Cassell would have been really good in that movie. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Before Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Reservoir Dogs is actually my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. Mm. I like it more than Pulp Fiction. I don't know. Something about... You're right, Aubrey. I think he would have been great. I really do. And Steve Buscemi's fine. Like, he's he's awesome in it, too. But yeah, picturing Cassell and sort of where he came from, and I don't know. It's almost like you can see him in that more than Buscemi. With that dialogue, the energy he could bring to it. Mm-hmm. Would have killed in that. Yeah, I agree. That's a shame that he never got a Tarantino movie with the like you're saying with the dialogue. He would that would have been fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of Buscemi, 1992's In the Soup, my last movie that I watched with Same. with Seymour, and I think honestly my favorite. It might be my favorite Seymour Cassell role because my man eats in this movie alongside yep. Stanley Tucci as the French husband who sleeps at. Buscemi's house and then Sam Rockwell plays a disabled son of the neighbor and I totally forgot about it. I remember t- referencing it briefly on the Rockwell episode but 
I'd never seen it. But anyways, Buscemi plays a screenwriter who's looking for someone to finance his film. And this random guy named Joe contacts him from a, a wanted like newspaper ad. And it's Seymour Cassell, who is this like eccentric, borderline homosexual, crazy criminal person who <laughs> I'm pretty sure has is missing a few things upstairs but is like weirdly magnetic on screen that's an incredible and accurate description kyle he is on <laughs> one thousand in this movie yes he is this is the meatiest role i've seen him take on of anything i've seen this is my favorite of his roles that i that i watched far and away mm-hmm. uh, kind of for the reason that i had mentioned earlier like he's just this charismatic magnetic dude who just like owns the room everybody's drawn to him and Sammy did an amazing job too, and the two of them clearly had a, a really strong like on screen chemistry presence. But he was just he was really really good in this one. And the movie it helped that the movie was good as a whole too. It wasn't great. There's two scenes that I loved. the uh, The first one was it was hilarious when. Buscemi was trying to raise money, and he did that naked, uh, the, the naked truth classified. <laughs> His neighbor that he has a crush on is like, "Did my brother see you in a movie?" And he's like, "Nope, nope, nope." Uh, you know, she said, "My nephew, my nephew saw you on TV." He goes, "Nope, nope, 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 definitely didn't." <laughs> the other scene that I loved was him and and Seymour were doing the cha cha. <laughs> we get a glimpse of that Buscemi that we all love, where he just flies off the handle. And he's like. Why do they go so fast? When there's no music, they go real slow. And then as soon as the music kicks on, they go super fast. Why are they doing that? And it's great. (laughs) Fully improvised, that scene had to be. Yeah, it was fun to watch. The part that got me laughing out loud was early on when uh, Skippy Cassell's character's brother was... Will Patton. Yeah, Will Patton was taking him out. Quote, unquote, (laughs) taking him home. And he kept... He went past. He was trying to intimidate him a little bit. And, you know, obviously throughout this movie, you're cutting back and forth between Buscemi narrating and then like his character doing the dialogue. And so he cuts to the narrator cuts to after he realizes he's not taking him home. And he goes, you know, man, this guy turned out to be a real prick as a narrator. And and Skippy turns over and goes, what'd you say? (laughs) That was awesome. That was a nice little breaking of the fourth wall. Yeah. Yeah. As we're talking about this, the fact that I got to watch this movie and I enjoyed it more than I realized is worth the whole episode. Yes. I watched this. I thought that he was great. This was one of the best performances he had. I did not care for the movie as much as you guys did. Ooh. That's okay. You're on teacher vacation. That's why. You just, you know what? You just weren't in the soup. That's what it was. You just never got fully in the soup on this one. That is a fact. I was not. I do love the introduction to Seymour Cassell's character, though. That scene is incredible. I just love the the Santa scene is my favorite. When he, pulls out and he says, are we going to steal his car? He goes, what do you think? He get a four on his salary as a cop? <laughs> and the, the guy's kid comes down. He's like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm going to take this back to the shop and get it repaired. <laughs> That scene is so perfect for me because he's got this like nonchalant, jovial smile, like carefree. And Buscemi's like, dude, we're committing a felony. Like, what are we doing right now? And he just and it goes. What I like about the characters, it's so absurd. And it goes right to that last scene when you're still not entirely sure when he's spoiler dying from a bullet wound that he's somehow hid. 
does he really want the film to be made or is he still conning him until the last second? I was like, I just appreciate the consistency of the absurdity. Yeah, a little open-ended too, which kind of lets you... I like it when you've got a little wiggle room at the end and the audience can interpret it based on what they've learned about the characters and the interactions throughout. I just love the introduction of the title too when he's like, <laughs> we're in the soup now. And I was like, fuck yeah, let's go. Let's get after it. <laughs> Honeymoon in Vegas, 1992, played Tony. And then the aforementioned indecent proposal the big money maker he played mr shackleford in 93 i will give you one million dollars to sleep with your friend kyle <laughs> <laughs> that's chris elliott in kingpin oh is that, you're right you. you're that's right what it's based right. on yeah i will give you right. one million dollars to sleep with your friend i was watching this i thought i'd seen it before but i guess i didn't i got it mixed up with all of the other erotic thrillers of that time <laughs> I was ready to have like real hot takes about this movie. Like I was like 90% of the way through and I'm like, yo, this movie is amazing. Which like, I mean, it's amazing in the way that like an Adrian line film could be. And then he just fumbles the bag at the end. And it, it becomes a movie that I still, I still really like because there's a lot of interesting things happening. It's also a movie in which I'm just like, there's some of the worst like characters. <laughs> yeah. Ever. Woody Harrelson and Demi Moore. I don't even think Woody Harrelson's that bad of a character. I think Demi Moore is a terrible person in this movie, and the movie does no favors for her. Like, yeah, she is like constantly making like really bad choices. Ooh. Great actors, top to bottom here too. Billy Conley, Billy Bob Thornton, Oliver Platt, Robert Redford. The first hour of this movie is awesome, and then it really loses steam. It like oddly lets like robert redford have like a, a heroic moment where he does like a good guy thing it's just like why did you let that happen it made to me more worse as a person it's an odd movie but also i'll probably watch it like 15 more times in my life because it's also awesome <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah i had a blast with this movie i mean it's not like you can't take it super serious i mean if, if you're watching it you know what you're kind of getting into I mean, Demi Moore is like at the peak of her powers in this. Woody Harrelson's great, and he's all over the place. Yeah, like it's all the versions of Woody Harrelson you could ever ask for. Rob Redford's like super charming and kind of the worst. It's fun. Kind of the worst. He's, he's kind of the worst. Like he just shows up places and is like demanding things. It's weird. The movie's awesome. So this would not be your film to get sucked into on an abandoned island. Got it. Understood. Oh no, I would watch this happily on an abandoned. It might be mine because Demi Moore is just unbelievable. But that's just me. She's not ugly. <laughs> not ugly. Slightest. Wasn't Cassell kind of a, like oddly a moral compass in this movie? He's like Redford's like assistant and bodyguard, right? He's more positioned as like a, like a thug. Oh, okay. So like when the gang trivia came up, I was kind of like, oh, I see it. Because I saw that. Like okay. Robert Redford has issues. This guy takes care of it. And he just has a vibe to me. Like, you just see certain people and you're like, oh, that guy just, he knows where to dispose bodies. <laughs> you said bodyguard. I would say more he's like a fixer. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Like the wolf. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> oh, the motherfucking wolf. <laughs> say what you want about Adrian, Adrian Lane, Adrian Lyon. I can never remember how you say his name, but nobody makes more cheesy, successful movies at the box office than he does. Okay, I was going to ask, what else has he done? Nine and a Half Weeks, <laughs> Fatal Attraction, Flashdance, This, Unfaithful, the Diane Lane movie, which Unfaithful. I know. Oh, yeah. I love that movie. Probably watched Unfaithful. that movie a million times because he loves Diane Lane. But 
<laughs> Diane Lane can come to the abandoned island with me forever. That's exactly. Great. I'm with you there. I'm with you there. He finds these movies that just have really good like ideas. Like there's just like it's not something that's like incredibly like intellectually stimulating, but it's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just it's enough to be like good premise. Like what would you do? And then this movie plays lightly plays with what would happen after you would make the decision that they choose to make. <laughs> it could happen to you. He plays Jack, a rich asshole who see he's not on screen much. He Rosie Perez falls for his character, but I'd never seen it. And I, I like the premise. I just really like the premise of it could happen to you with Bridget Fonda and Nick Cage being a good dude who gives away money to people and then people end up giving them a bunch of money by the end of the movie. It was just heartwarming. I enjoyed it. But is it somebody wins a lottery? Nicholas Cage plays a cop who goes to a diner. Uh, Bridget Fonda is turns out is going to have to file for bankruptcy. And Nick Cage doesn't have money for a tip, so he just says to her, hey, I'll come back tomorrow. I've got this lottery ticket. If I win the lottery, I'll come back and I'll give you half, right? Uh, and then they win the lottery because he fucks up and gets the wrong date of his anniversary with Rosie Perez, blah, blah, blah. And then she doesn't want him to give away the money, but he's like, I gotta be a man of my word. I'm going to give her my money. And then Rosie Perez becomes the all time worst human in human history. I hate this movie only because of Rosie Perez's character. Oh, she bothers me so much. But by the end of the movie, Bridget Fonda and Nicholas Cage, goodness prevails, and the people give them six hundred thousand so she can buy her her cafe back, and he can stay on the force and not have to get to go into like extreme poverty. So it's got a redeeming quality. I love Rosie Perez, so I can't like this movie. I mean, she's excellent. I do too, but she bothers me so much in this movie. Her oh. character bothers you. She's great at this. She nails this. Yeah, she is. She's just a yep. She's just a total bitch. Seymour Cassell just plays the rich asshole who she falls for only because he has money, and that's it. It's a very thin role overall, but worth watching, I think. And he pulls it off, I bet. Yeah, and uh, Stanley Tucci plays Bridget Fonda's ex-husband, who is a big old Italian piece of shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <The> film <laughs> very similar to In the Soup, Stanley Tucci. So he wasn't stretching too much there. Dead Presidents, 95, he's uncredited alongside Chris Tucker and Keith David in that film. Played Saul. And then he did 18 episodes of Under Suspicion as Lieutenant Schwartz. So some more, another law enforcement role from 94 to 95. Did anybody else watch Dream for an, for an Insomniac? It's a love story, but I was going through this roller coaster of his character. So he plays her dad who's running this diner. And at first, he has an awful awful italian accent and i was like oh man i can't wait to just destroy this guy on the podcast because that is (laughs) bad but then it turns out there's a reveal that he's just a huge frank sinatra fan and so he pretends to have an italian accent and that's the bit and i was like all right that's pretty cool all right i'm with it now 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 i understand why it's so awful and terrible because that's that's hilarious he's like my dad's obsessed with sinatra so he just pretends to have an italian accent because at first i was like is that french like what is that and I'm like, oh, okay, now it makes sense. So it was all intentional. Yes. So I appreciated that roller coaster of a. I'm I'm not gonna say watch the movie because it's sappy and over sentimental, but go watch it for Seymour maybe. And then one episode of Chicago Hope in 1997. Uh, we had to pull an audible on our highest critic score because uh, Love Streams was not available. So the next highest was Rushmore from 1998, his first Wes Anderson film. He played Bert. And Aubrey drew this. Yeah, so this was a first watch for me. Same. Wait, seriously? You guys had never seen it? No. That's shocking to me. 
I've been meaning to for a long time, so this is awesome. That's shocking. Rushmore is about Max, played by Jason Schwartzman, a teenager at Rushmore Academy. What Max lacks in studious behavior, he more than makes up for with his creativity. He's involved in pretty much every club and extracurricular activity that's possible. All of those activities doesn't stop him from being lonely. That loneliness draws him towards uh, toward Herman Blum, Bloom which is played by Bill Murray, an industrialist and a father of some of the other students at Rushmore. Max also finds Miss Cross, played by Olivia Williams, a new teacher at Rushmore, and immediately falls for her. Both of those relationships send Max down a path of self-discovery through love, heartbreak, and friendship. So it's a basically a coming-of-age movie. I love coming-of-age movies, so I, I love this. I was drawn to it almost immediately because of that. I like the Wes Anderson of it all because this one felt different than every other Wes Anderson movie I've seen because it it felt grounded in like actual reality instead of Wes Anderson's reality. Yes. Which was really cool to see. So it was cool to see someone who I know as like an eccentric filmmaker who basically has just created his own thing and he tells stories within that. It was really cool to see him do a version of that with like regular characters in the real world. So the visuals I thought were beautiful but in a different way i always think wes anderson films are great this one was really beautiful in a different way because you get to see like the way that the quirky way that he views kind of the world you get to see through the camera and through like just the the regular world uh which i thought was great i thought that's also true with his characters Jason schwartzman is a really like max is a really quirky character but a lot of the other characters are just mostly normal you kind of got to see Wes Anderson balance that and almost have a take on it. Like, have a quirky character, an offbeat character, someone who doesn't really fit in in the midst of a world full of kind of like regular people instead of having everyone be strange. It's just like a couple of people that are strange, which created its own little interesting commentary. This is one of my favorite Wes Anderson movies. I try not to jump too hard too fast because I just watched it. I love it for all those reasons. I love it because it's like this really clever take on a coming of age. You have this complicated Max character who is he's kind of a dick sometimes, but he's just basically like loves this teacher and makes this really random friend and then is devastated when the friend falls for the teacher and vice versa. And he just kind of has to pick himself up from there watching himself pick himself up and mature and figure his and navigate that was really interesting i have two reflections on this one wes anderson one seymour cassell the most wes anderson scene of the entire film and you could see it early on in his craft is that sequence where he shows everything that max does at the school uh-huh. where it's like 20 different things i mean back to back where he's like president of the fencing club uh and it's just like one i'm like how the well most of them are it's weird. all weird yeah but like that was that early wes anderson style you could see come out with just like the rapid fire editing coming through and then i just really i really really like seymour cassell's character and the way it was written in this story it's not a huge character but it is a a father who is desperately seeking the adoration of his son who is so distracted with other things and like just adoringly comes to support his son even though his son kind of treats him like shit until the end of the film because there's that there's that one still scene where he's like watching and you could see he genuinely now he realizes his son finally appreciates him or at least come around to it. Seymour actually 
very subtle emotion, like deeper emotion that I saw on screen that I that I didn't see a lot of him doing in other roles. I loved his character in this because it was different. Mm-hmm. Like I, this is kind of solidified how great of a character actor he is because it's like it's a sweet, soft spoken character. He's like jolly to an extent. Like he's like just nice. He's refreshing mm-hmm. on screen, which is not something I had seen him do up to that point. So he was a nice balance to kind of everything that was going on. Also, Jason Schwartzman absolutely kills this movie. Charisma. It's one of the things where, like, I feel like movie people always knew he was really good. And this is probably why. And I'm just finding out. <laughs> so I'm like, I, I always liked him, but he's way better than, like, he's going, he's getting after it in this movie. These are OR scrubs. Oh, are they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he's so charismatic on screen in this movie. Mm-hmm. It, it works because his character is so, like, there's a fine line between aggravatingly annoying and charismatic, but trying to figure shit out. And he, he treads that well plays an actual teenager and he plays it well mm-hmm. a movie where there's a 14 slash 15 year old who is coming on to a grown-ass female teacher could go wrong quickly but i think it goes to show wes anderson's craft that you eventually are just like oh yeah well that's just normal behavior <laughs> mm-hmm. i love rushmore it's 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 one i've always wanted to see i love obviously i'm a bill murray on screen fan so I'm glad I finally got a chance to watch this, and this was the episode because we haven't we haven't talked about it in 87 episodes until now. That's wild. Mm-hmm. Just uh, another year before our our next review, Animal Factory played Lieutenant Seaman, a movie <laughs> Seaman uh, alongside Willem. <laughs> I, could, I could not back at school apparently. <laughs> yeah, there we go. That's alongside Willem Dafoe and Danny Trejo, a decent little uh, prison movie from back in the day. You know, if you're if you're interested in prison movies that happen around the millennium, you're here. We made it, so. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for it. Next Wes Anderson film was The Royal Tenenbaums. He played Dusty in t- 2001 alongside Angelica Houston. Gene Hackman-led project on this one. This was the first watch for me also. Ooh. Wow. I've seen Royal Tenenbaums. These are like the only two Wes Anderson movies I've seen, but both of them might. <laughs> I like Rushmore a lot more than Royal Tenenbaums. I'm going to watch this again. That's my review. Do you not like Ben Stiller and his shitty kids? I love Ben Stiller in this movie, and I like, like he's probably one of my favorite parts. I had a hard time connecting with this one. What is Seymour's role as Dusty? I didn't rewatch this, so I don't remember. I'm gonna be honest with you, I don't even remember. I watched this one early. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he got hooked up with Wes Anderson because he saw his, his short Bottle Rocket at Sundance. And he said he was super captivated by it. He was like Gene Hackman's um, doctor, but he wasn't. I don't, nobody, they weren't really sure if he was actually a doctor. Okay. It was like really small. Okay. He was like a part of that bit. Keep it on Seymour Cassell. Just go back and watch Death Game from 1978. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Take it back. One of many baseball movies that he's been in, uh, 61. He played Sam. The, uh, the first time we've talked about this movie, a story about the epic battle between Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris for 61, 61 home runs. I love 61. Seymour Cassell plays a, he's a newspaper reporter in this, isn't he? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He's like tracking, he's like tracking their, the race. Spot on. He even, he even fits like the sixties hat, like even fits on Seymour Cassell. Like that, that look. Oh yeah. It's yeah. perfect cast. Uh, 61. If you haven't seen it, it's a Billy Crystal TV movie. Definitely recommend it. I think it's on HBO. Thomas Jane and Barry Pepper play Mantle and, Maris, respectively. It's a great movie. Go check it out. Even if you hate the Yankees, it's worth a watch. 
<laughs> and Seymour Cassell's kind of like a he's almost like a narrator of this because like he's talking about like how like how many home runs each one has and like there's that famous scene where like he's I think he's like talking about Mantle at the batting cage. Yeah, it's it's excellent. This is good. I'm surprised it's not a bigger movie that they haven't revisited this. I also thought this movie would have been better if they would have had two different people, Roger Maris and. I think they did a fine job. They both looked just like him, though. That was the crazy part. It's like they probably weren't the best actors, but they looked exactly yeah. like Maris and uh, Mantle. Thomas Jane to Mickey Mantle was pretty spot on. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And, and the movie still worked. It's still good. It's a good time if you care about baseball at all. It's a good sit for sure. All right, Rigby, we'll keep, you're going to keep talking because we're going to hit largest audience gap, which is 2001's Bartleby. He plays Frank. Well, I ain't going to talk for long because this was fucking weird. Please don't. Please don't. It's not <laughs> worth it. Yeah. Um, Say that again. That's the review. So Bartleby is a 2001 uh, movie based off a short story by, uh, by Herman Melville, the, uh, the author of Moby Dick. Yeah, it's Crispin Glover plays the aforementioned an employee in like a he's a low level employee in a government records office. He refuses to do any work that's assigned to him. The point, I guess, of the story is that like we all kind of work these like lifeless jobs and like no one gets any passion out of it. And it's like this is what happens if like somebody kind of starts like fighting back against it. Which I guess I could understand, but I don't know. This one didn't really do it for me. Seymour Cassell's role, I wish he had a bigger role because that would have given me more of a reason to to watch it and actually care about it. He plays a city manager in the movie who is like the love interest for this flirt in the office. That's the other thing. The office has these weird eccentric characters. One of them is a woman who tries to come on to Seymour Cassell. Like, There's all these like side stories where Seymour Cassell kind of fits in, but... Yeah, I mean, it's supposed to have this kind of like like meaning to it. I didn't really understand it. I guess if I were to watch it again or maybe read the short story, I could understand it. But Crispin Glover's just freaking weird. He's a strange dude. Was this uh written for the theater initially? No, it's a I mean, it's a short it's like a story from the 1850s, so it's like a poem, I think. So it's I don't think it's a uh, based off a play or it was ever turned into a play. Okay, it it had very very strong like stage or, or play vibes at least in the telling of it. Well, yeah, and there's like only like five actors in the whole movie, so. Right. <laughs> I said it's like a poor man's David Lynch movie because it's like, okay, what the hell am I watching? Like that's kind of what it reminded me of. Yeah, apparently there was there was an original version from the '70s with Paul Schofield. This would be the last movie I'd want to take to the abandoned island with me and have to watch on repeat. My Desert Island movie. If you were like, this is the one you got to watch on repeat, I would just push the whole TV into the ocean. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd be on Suicide Watch very quickly. This is, it's bad. My review of this one for the plot is bad office space. <laughs> That's what I said. I was like, it's a knockoff office or office space. It's bad, man. It's awful. It, like, if you take all the humor and entertainment out of office space, this is your left with Bartleby. This is exactly what's wrong with sites like Rotten Tomatoes, the fact that Johnny B. Good has a 0% in this movie has like a 68 from users yeah. and a 35 from critics. Go fuck yourselves. Like this is, <laughs> I agree. It's unbelievable. At least Johnny B. Good is entertainingly ridiculous. This is dumb. This is the type of movie where I can 100% see a critic sitting down and being like, no one else gets it, but he didn't see it the way that I saw it. 
Yeah, this movie's totally. awful. Totally, <laughs> this yes. movie's awful. It's one of my least favorite. This is one of the least favorite viewing experiences I've had in all of Munson's history. This movie's <laughs> terrible. Pretty bad. <laughs> I will never watch this again. Aubrey, I've never missed an episode, and I would say the same thing about this film in terms of reviews. 100% since episode one, this is one of the worst things I've had to watch. It's pretty bad. I will never watch this movie again, and I will work very hard to forget that it ever happened to me. <laughs> I'd rather watch this in that uh, Transylvania 6-5000 movie, but... Nope. That's <laughs> not a chance. Not a chance. 2002. Stealing Harvard. He plays Uncle Jack. Tom Green in Stealing Harvard is hilarious. I'll give him that. Not a very, not a very good movie, but it's got its moments. Yeah, it has very poor ratings, but I know it's a movie that people know about. So, yeah, one of my favorite character actors ever, Dennis Farina. Excellent. Largest critic gap is supposed to be James's review. He obviously couldn't join us last second, and that was the beer. I always want to say the burial, the burial society, two thousand two. Sam, uh, my understanding is that Ron Maker, you watched this, so if you want to give the quickest review. <laughs> Sure. Where do you sit on the gap? So this one is essentially a guy who is looking for a change in his life. Accountant, his two bosses are like threatening to him. And like, you feel like they got like some mob ties. And essentially it's, there's $2 million missing and somebody, somebody's after him. And so essentially like without giving too much away about midway through it's he's the whole time like he's getting dangled over a bridge like i didn't take the money i don't know where it is about halfway through you find out he took the money so he's like going through and he's he's basically working at the jewish burial uh, ritual and he's trying to get involved in that and we find out again that this is a plot to like fake his own death so that nobody like nobody comes after him seymour castle plays like the i think they refer to it as like the underworld like Jewish mob boss, basically. So Cassell is in there, and uh, he, again, it's like a, a couple of scenes. You don't get a ton of it, but he, he plays the heavy again there. And essentially, it's you know, it's following this guy and, and his efforts to. It's kind of a heist movie, honestly, on the second half, and pretty entertaining all in. The the twist there, kind of midway through, to get you into Act Three, is is uh, pretty fascinating. But you know, as far as Cassell is concerned, not a not a ton here. He plays the the heavy well, I think, in in one scene uh, that we saw. But otherwise, like I I wouldn't go out of the way to to watch it for him. <laughs> that seems to be a trend. Yeah, yeah. Where would you fall on the critic gap here of fifty to twenty three? I would go on the higher end, to be honest with you. Okay. I went in and and the first act of this, I was like good God, what have I gotten myself into? But as it went on, like it, it got more and more interesting. You know, we saw a good, a good twist there and uh, it was, it got a lot better. You know, I won't spoil the ending, but I also think it's one of those where it's like, I, I thought it was quite apropos for, for what it was. So yeah, I, I definitely land on the higher end of the critics here. And I think of all the Cassell movies that I watched, it, it was probably top three for me. Ooh. Yeah. Oh. High praise. Damn it. Now I feel like an asshole. I didn't watch it. Pretty solid. Yeah. The, most of the critics, it doesn't seem agree, but yeah, it was, it was pretty solid. Listen, I was, I was too busy watching uh, Bartleby. I was very busy. <laughs> very, very busy. <laughs> okay. Well, let's, let's round it out. Thank you, Ron Maker, for covering for James on that. I'm sure Here's- he will appreciate that. 2002 until his passing in 2019, here are the big ones. So first and foremost, I want to mention 
briefly earlier, stuck on you. He plays Morty in 2003. The boys is agent, I believe, is his character and stuck on you to try to get them roles. And not shockingly, well, to get Greg Kinnear a role. And the first one he gets him is in a porn. <laughs> I had never seen Stuck on You. And it was a nice, dumb watch that I enjoyed. It's, it's interesting when you watch like a Fairly Brothers movie and it was not part of your core upbringing. It's way less enjoyable. <laughs> and this is a, definitely a Critic Gap film, too. And like critics liked it, but fans were not huge fans. It was like 35% from the fans. This movie was a jump the shark for both Damon and Kinnear. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And just, just wild, crazy role. And fans probably didn't like it. They're like, man, I want Matt Damon beating people up like in a Bourne movie. I think the, the data would prove you correct on that case because <laughs> the fans were not a big fan of this at all. I find Cassell was one of the better parts of the movie in my mind. His his toupee that he wears is ridiculous in this film. It's utterly ridiculous. And he's <laughs> just plays like the most ridiculous Hollywood agent you would ever expect to run into. So I appreciated that. I think he nailed that part. This is only Fairly Brothers appearance? It must be. Yep. Mm-hmm. That I'm aware of. Um, 2004, his last Wes Anderson film, The Life Aquatic with Steve Sazu, played Esteban, a film that he Wes Anderson wanted him to go bald for. But he was filming another movie where he needed his hair, so he ended up doing the whole cap thing. And he said he hated it. It was terrible because he spent two to three hours a day, like getting that damn thing on his head to make to appear bald. Yuck! But Wes Anderson really wanted him in his film for a third time, and so said, "I'll I'll pay for the money and the makeup to pretend like you're bald." Who's been in the most Wes Anderson films? Jason Schwartzman, probably. <laughs> Honestly, I was gonna say Jason Schwartzman or. Or Owen Wilson, or one of those guys. Bill Murray, Murray too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bill Murray. Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. How many for Murray? Handful, probably five or five or six. Yeah. I bet Schwartzman's the uh, the actual answer. I think Schwartzman's been in every Wes Anderson. Who's in Bottle Rock? Uh, Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson might be yeah. the answer. Yeah, and Luke Wilson too. Yeah, Luke Wilson. Yep. Rigby, you got a you got a little Owen Wilson for us? Wow. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Nailed it. I love it. Bill Murray has been in nine. Jason Schwartzman in eight. Owen Wilson in seven. And then you drop down to Adrian Brody in five. Okay. Look at us. Wow. Bill Murray and Schwartzman. One and two. There we go. 2006, what I think is probably his funniest role. That's my opinion. But his role is Dirt in Beer League. Great name. Uh, a film that has not aged very well. Oh, no. I don't think it aged a month after it was released. Dirt has some of the best and funniest lines in this movie. Oh, absolutely. It's hilarious in this. <laughs> oh, man. I wish I saw more of this in his career. Just getting a chance to just play a raunchy old dude just saying whatever he wants. He fucking kills it, man. It seems like a missed opportunity, did it not? Like, this, this could have been a... He could have made a lot of movies like this. Rigby, what was the abortion line? It kills me every time. I wish I was... 25 years younger or something like that. He's like, I know, so you could you could have been my dad and raised me. No, because I would have paid your mother to have an abortion. Yeah, I would have paid your mother to have an abortion. <laughs> yeah, the one that always kills me is when they're in the joint after their big fight, and he's he's got the fucking, he's got that cigar in his mouth, and he's staring at the big dude on uh, Manganelli's team, and he goes, what are you looking at, big guy? When I was in the joint, I guy's bigger than you. <laughs> 
And Artie, Artie Lang starts to say something. And he goes, you remember, guys. Wait, did Dirt just say you used to fuck guys? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great. Speaking of Warren, that's a Warren Hicks favorite from what I remember. I was texting Warren about it because I was like, Warren, I'm, I'm watching Beer League right now. And he was just popping some one-liners at me yep. from that movie. James is uh, not on our show, so I can say, I don't want any Italians drinking out of my water bottle. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I have to say about that. Yep. Well, let's make sure that's part of his uh, final words for sure. 2007 did an episode of ER and then also did an episode of Flight of the Concords in 2009 alongside Kristen Schaal. And then another baseball movie that I think a few of us enjoy, Chasing 3000, 2010. It's a charming little baseball movie about the Pittsburgh Pirates and Roberto Clemente and kids that want to basically travel across country to see him hit hit number 3000. Clemente A rules and then B it was yeah, it was fun seeing Ray Liotta in a I would say normal role. Yeah. Not a mobster type of role. Yeah. It's a, it obviously ends on a very sad note, spoiler alert, but you get to learn. No, we a don't know. Bit more. Kyle, how's it in? How, how, what happened? <laughs> uh, Oppenheimer drops the bomb. Okay, that's what happened. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you learn a lot about how amazing of a person Roberto Clemente was, and how he inspired a lot of people. So it was a, it was a good watch. I enjoyed it. Yeah. 2010, he's in Pete Smalls is dead alongside Tim Roth and probably somebody else that I'm missing. He plays Seiko, but there's not much else to mention i mean he's in other stuff he's in eight films between 2011 and 2019 that i don't think anybody the average film fan would ever recognize unfortunately just wasn't really in much to note from 2016 he played boris that was his last film but in the 2010s i didn't really recognize much on his filmography i think the 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 key is as we mentioned earlier he did pass in 2019 due to complications with alzheimer's so that also probably played a major role in why he wasn't a lot of projects Mm -hmm late in his life because Alzheimer's is a son of a bitch, man. Yeah. Yeah. Especially for a guy that has such a magnetic and charming personality and demeanor. It would be, it would be particularly tough to watch somebody go through that like him. So rest in peace, Seymour. Sure. He did a lot of really cool, great work and it was, uh, it was a joy to research it. Even though a lot of people don't know who Seymour Cassell is, the average film fan, it was, it was fun to watch some of these films and watch him do what he loved to do. That's what makes this show fun, though, is getting to cover people like this because yep. you might not know his name. Or you might know his name, you don't know his face, or you might know his face, but you might not know his name. But this kind of ties it all together. So I like doing ones like this. I agree. This was Okay, Rigby, top performances. Were you able to find any? So I wasn't able to find a uh, list of his performances, but when he did... When he passed, the British Film Institute released a five films to remember Seymour Cassell by. So not necessarily, this is kind of a combination of his performances and just being overall good movies. So this is from April 2019, right after he passed away. So No pressure, guys. Don't fuck this up, right? It'll ruin his memory. And we, we, did, we did mention all of them. Well, that's good. Faces? It's got to be. You got nominated for that one. Yep, Faces. That makes sense. In the soup. Yep. Rushmore? Rushmore, three for three. Right, I'm done. You guys got it from here. <laughs> <laughs> I wanna, I wanna say beer league, but I don't think that's in good taste for a list like this. So it's not gonna be on there. That's my guess. I wish. Yeah, it's that's. A, we'll give that an honorable mention. <laughs> the correct answer is beer league, but it's not gonna show up on that particular list. <laughs> oh, interesting. What are the other two? Are there any other Casavetti's films on that list? 
Uh, yes, one more. Katsvedis. Is it Minion Moskowitz? Yep. Oh, good call. Four or five. Can we get Can we get five out of five? Oh. I'm not counting Beer League because I know that was done in jest. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> this is hard. Like, what would be the next? I mean, it might be a Wes Anderson film. I don't know. Uh, nope. So I'll give you a hint. It's kind of related to In the Suit. Because it's around the same time period? Is that what you're saying? Black and white? What you, Stanley Tucci's in it? What are you trying to say? It's with someone from the In the Soup universe is, is his next film. Is it It Could Happen to You? No. Oh, we almost got it. No. In the Soup universe. What's the other Buscemi role? He's got five of them. It's not Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> What's the other movie that he's in it with Steve Buscemi? Did we not mention this? I thought we did. Trees Lounge? Trees Lounge. We didn't mention that, no. Oh, shit. I thought we did mention that. I might have moved it. I don't know. No, we didn't mention it. Sorry, that's my fault. That's an oversight. I like when we find one. It humbles us. Mostly me, because I build the show notes. But. <laughs> <laughs> pretty good, though. Four out of five is solid. That's pretty good. Which one do we think is his top one? I mean, I feel like everybody has a different answer on this, but I think we could probably all agree, like, top three are Faces, In the Soup, and Beer League for me. <laughs> Beer League's up there for me. It's Beer League is performances is hilarious. Then yeah, I, I'm not mad at that conversation with performances. Rushmore's up there though too. I've, uh, Rushmore's right there for me. Yeah, I do like Killing of the Chinese Bookie. I really do. I wish I'd seen Love Streams just because that's his. Same. That's mm-hmm. his highest rated movie, and it's cast <laughs> everybody movies, wishes they could see it. it. <laughs> yeah, every human. <laughs> One day we'll have to we'll have to bootleg it somehow. Maybe aliens have a copy. Don't worry, guys. I'll have that Criterion Blu-ray soon. For me, it's Faces first, and then I would say... I think Rushmore is probably third, and I don't really like Wes Anderson, but I do like Rushmore. It's In the Soup, Beer League, and probably Faces for me. Those are my three. Got it. In the Soup, definitely my top one. Let's get into the months of me. What we do, we rate every actor on a scale of 0 to 100, based on a variety of factors that could include longevity, project choice, pop culture impact, acting range, their awards footprint... Any other talents they might have, their personal life, comedic chops, box office success, and anything else that matters to us as the Munsons. We'll start this time with Case. My impression of Seymour Cassell is very skewed. When we first started talking about doing this podcast, being able to do a deep dive into the careers of actors like Steve Buscemi and other phenomenal actors who a lot of people don't focus on is what actually interested me the most in our format. There's an early interest for me in actors like Cassell. Also, I did read somewhere that he is actually Buscemi's favorite actor. So that's a big plus for him. Being that he's had such a fun life and career in film, it just has a massive advantage in my scoring. He was once quoted as saying, quote, I'd go anywhere to do an independent film for the price of a plane ticket. In an interview, they later asked him about it, and he just, he just smiled and said, yeah, you know, you got to watch what you say sometimes. <laughs> He's a true champion of independent film, which is incredibly important to the film industry in order to maintain uh, the success and advances of mainstream film. But overall, he just seems like, you know, he would have been a pleasure to work with and be around. And he has an incredibly immense filmography. And a lot of people that have that kind of filmography, the cracks start to show. I think we ever saw that in his career. Casting-wise, he was missed out on a lot of roles like we've talked about. And I think you guys talked about Beer League would have been one to be in that 
type of a role. I think his ability to be a street kid on the corner rapping, you know, chatting it back and forth with his buddies, I think that was underplayed in his career, and that's unfortunate. But, I mean, I've got an unreasonably high score, and I'm completely comfortable with it. I'm going to give the guy a 70. That's pretty good. Rigby. That's nothing to be ashamed of, Case. We don't score shame. I'm with you. I, I, he obviously had a really good career, a uh, very long career. C- came out of the gates really strong with faces. Mm-hmm. He's got like his demeanor is so recognizable too. And I know I said I kind of confused him for for he and Harvey Keitel, but that's just because they're very similar. And yeah, I think think he's going to get a pretty high score for me too. I'm going to actually give him a 71 myself. What? I'm going to give him a 72. You want me to change it? <laughs> I can change it. 72 case. No. You want a 72 case? Yeah, hell yeah. Give him a 72 for me. All right, Rodmaker. Kind of going through this, I, I think one of the things that I try to do is I am not nearly as much of a, a film buff and, and film history as you all are. And so I try to view some of these actors that do older stuff. I try to put some of my biases away and put them in a different context. I don't know that I'm always great at it. Uh, definitely have some recency bias as I got into film 2000 and later. But a couple things, and, and most of this has, has been touched on, but for me, like I, I totally agree with what you said, Case. I think anytime somebody is like just tenant of independent film, I think that's something that's totally commendable. I truly believe that independent film is the heartbeat of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So I think someone who committed himself to that for so long is it's just amazing. I think it's a, it's a lot big points in, in my book for that tough upbringing. Sounds like he straightened himself out and kind of made a, a pretty tremendous career out of what otherwise could have been kind of irrelevance. You know, he didn't have really a stable childhood, uh, a stable parents for a lot of his life there, and so that was that was super helpful. On the flip side, it's you know I really wish we were seeing more from him at least. For me, a character actor, there's kind of a ceiling that you hit at a certain point. And unless you are someone who just has such a recognizable, instantaneous presence in those few moments that you are in a lot of these films, I just I don't think it can go super high. But on the flip side, it's like when he was given the opportunity to like command the center stage and command the audience, he absolutely took it. And he, had, he clearly has a lot of charisma. I think that goes back to, you know, guy who's does a lot of improv likable by almost anybody he works with as well and certainly we also have to to give an extra point for the mustache i think he's right up there with the tom Selleck. Ooh, so good call pretty good oh, wow i am uh i'm gonna be just a little bit uh lower than the two so far but i think this is still fair score i'm gonna put him at a 65 all right aubrey yeah, so I try to keep mine with on-screen stuff and try to go through their movies and their performances in particular and just see how that goes. With with a character actor, it's hard because usually you're kind of you're looking at like small performances and you don't really know what goes into what it is that he's doing. And so with him, he to me is a, is like a great like top of the line character actor. You can tell because of the versatility. So I feel confident that like mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what he's given. He's going to be able to make something useful out of it. You got to dig a little bit to find stuff that I find interesting. His performance in A Decent Proposal isn't anything that would be memorable had I not been doing a podcast about him. But when I'm looking at it and I'm thinking about it and weighing it up against everything else, it's a different thing. 
he has a presence about him that's different than that than everything else he's done. He's been able to do a variety of different styles, different films. He can be really funny and be really funny in different ways, which is really hard to do. Yeah. You know, when he's gotten bigger roles, he does well. He's a great character actor. This was fun because ultimately I got to discover like almost like a secret, like a hidden secret in Hollywood. Like this guy just runs around and does really dope indie movies all the time. And he's good at it. <laughs> uh, so for that, I'm going to go the same line. I'm going to go 65. I will round us out. I enjoyed this. This was fun. Again, much like Case talked about, these are the types of actors I like to dig into because these are the ones where people just don't know a ton about them and I think they can come to our show to help dissect a you know, performance like this where people are like, I don't even have ever heard of that. Now, to that point, I almost want to call him the Owl. Like, that should be his nickname because every time someone asked me who we were covering and I said Seymour <laughs> Cassell, they said, who? <laughs> so I, unfortunately i speak to some pop culture impact there he's he doesn't have much uh, most people don't know who he is and even if you show him photos i think a lot of times unless they're like beer league fans or cassavetes fans they're probably not going to know who he is because even in the wes anderson films he's a small part in those so pop culture impact takes a big and i don't know if dramatic acting is really much in his bag he's just great at being like a quirky character with charisma and he got to play a couple characters that were in his bag over over his career and yeah he's good at being a heavy and being a manipulator and things like that but unfortunately those aren't always in films that people have seen or will see or going to go out of their way to watch i gave him as many extra points as i could i kind of broke my scale for intangibles because of his detroit background because he's been in at least four movies about baseball that I know of. And you could make a case that it could happen to you is about baseball too. Cause Nicholas Cage is playing baseball in the streets with these kids a bunch of times in that movie. So you could say five at the very least. And so I got to give some love to a guys in a bunch of baseball movies from a role project choice standpoint. And obviously get some bonus points for dirt and beer league because he's hilarious. And it makes me want to watch that movie again, despite being one of the more offensive scripts I've heard in a long time. It's hilarious, but it's terrible. And while he busted his Oscar nut early, he has more than enough noms than a lot of actors we've covered that don't have any Oscar noms. So, you know, I give him a little bit of credit there. Mm-hmm. Some other performers that people might say are better don't have one. And he's a, he at least said that one. And while he didn't play a huge role in many of his movies, he did pick some pretty good films and directors over the years. So I give him some credit there. Unfortunately, I have to kind of stick to I'm a, a slave to my scale in some ways, right? And how I compare. So I'm going to be the lowest one of the group with a 58, but that's a 58 with love because I think Seymour Cassell is, doesn't get the credit he deserves. And he's not going to get it from Kyle either. No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. With that, that gives Seymour Cassell a 66.2, which puts him in 60th place of 87 actors. So that puts him sandwiched between Christine Baranski and Gary Cole. And if this man had a higher score than Christine Baranski, I would have questions for us, <laughs> to be honest. But hey, that's just how the cookie crumbles, man. We liked we liked his stuff. He did much better than his box office snapshot would would suggest. Oh, yeah. At the end of the day, in our rating scale, inflation, <laughs> inflation, and independent film, baby, never does well at the box office. <laughs> Dennis Haysbert, two spots ahead of him, though. Gary Cole, Matt Dillon, Seth Green, Edgar Ramirez, and Daryl Hannah, all below him. All right, five actors that were thrown onto the wheel for episode 88. 
That'll drop on August 24th. We're going to be joined by Cam Sully of the Jacked Up Review Show podcast. He was with us for Kristen Shaw, Dennis Haysbert, and Keith David. So my man likes, he likes his, his cult actors and things like that. Friend of the pod, always a big fan of Cam. He will come and he will probably have watched almost everything that this performer has ever done because that's what Cam does. Mm-hmm. He's already been updating me on what he saw, stuff like that. So these five actors were thrown under the wheel. The wheel selected one of them, and then Cam decided to join for one of those. We have Julia Stiles, Mads Mickelson, Rebel Wilson, Barry Pepper, as previously mentioned uh, about 15 minutes ago, and Sally Hawkins. What are our thoughts on that list? It's a good list. Sally Hawkins would be fun. She's, she's great. Yes. But obviously, Mads would be my pick just because he's the man. My choice is Sally Hawkins all day. I, w- I would love that one. We need to talk about Shape of Water. It's got to happen. Paddington, man. Paddington is what I would just, yep. I would shut the whole thing down and talk about Paddington. <laughs> is it the greatest movie of all time? <laughs> I thought it was Paddington 2. Next time. It's the greatest movie of all time. Mads is a baddie in the most recent Indiana Jones film, and he was phenomenal in that role. So, yeah, he'd be a lot of fun too. The Hunt is one of my favorite movies of all time. The Hunt is great. Absolutely love to talk about the hunt. Mads kills in everything, man. Everything I've seen Mads in. Yeah. Another round is excellent too. Mm-hmm. Another round is phenomenal. I've not seen that. Yet. Arctic is the one where he's like in the plane, mm-hmm. right? And that he's great in that. So, yeah, Mads would be phenomenal. Rebel Wilson, we would laugh a bunch. I don't. There's not much range there with Rebel Wilson. I think hers would be interesting. I only we'd watch a lot of like good stuff. But I think it would be interesting. I was looking through her IMDb recently, randomly, and I'm like, this would be this would be interesting. Who is it that said, "Oh, Aubrey, you don't you weren't a big fan of Barry Pepper's casting in '61"? So I'm, I almost want to subject you to a Barry Pepper episode just to see how you react to it. It would be how the end of my summer is going. So <laughs> he's got a lot of great movies, so it'd be a lot of fun. Green Mile, Barry Pepper. There, he's got a lot, he's got a lot of great movies. He's just he's a bit one note. And I'd get to test that out. So I'd like to be proven wrong. That's the hypothesis. Yeah. Case, what do you like about this? What do you What do you think? Whoever. Love it. As long as it's not Kevin Spacey, you're happy. I'm not a big fan, or or I don't dislike anybody in that list. So it'll be an interesting one, no matter what, for me. We didn't talk about Julia Stiles. Any hot opinions or thoughts on Julia? She's got some good stuff in there. She again, hers would be hers would be a lot of fun. I don't know what we would do in the last like ten years, but. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know what else she's been in lately. I know the dancing movie. What's the movie? She's Save the Last Dance. Save the Last Dance. That's what it is. That's the one I always think of. Are you just dancing? Is that what that was? <laughs> was Julia Stiles in the Bourne movies? Uh huh. Yeah, and we've only talked about them once, right? With uh, Ramirez. Yes, I think so. I think that's our only mention. That would be kind of fun. Okay. Well, who do we think Cam would join for and crush? Julia Stiles. Mads. We got a one for Mads, one for Stiles. I, I think you would choose Rebel Wilson. And Rebel Wilson, okay. Rodmaker, who would you pick? I think Mads would be an interesting dissection. I feel like I've only ever seen him as the, the bad guy. I would be curious to see if there's other thing in his filmography that expands outside of that. And I would pick either Mads or Sally Hawkins if I had my choice. I think those two would be both fun. I think we watched the best movies with those two. For sure, but hey, I don't decide. Mike Rodmaker doesn't decide. Cam Sully doesn't decide. The wheel decides, and we'll see what happens. 
Rodmaker, I know I kind of slightly peer pressured you when you were down to two actors and said, you know, you should just do Seymour Cassell. But I'm glad you did because this is a lot of fun, man. And we're, we're always happy to have you with us. Slight departure from some of the other actors we, you'd come on to talk about. Honestly, I, I enjoyed all four of them before that, but I definitely had some softballs and it's good to, to balance it out a little bit. Let's, uh, and, and I didn't know that he was as into independent film as he was before getting into it. So Cassell was good. And now I, I feel like I've rounded out some of the, as I said, the actor portfolio. Any plugs, <laughs> any wise words before we let you go? Plugs or wise words? I'd say stay cool out there. Uh, every summer, I'm always reminded that climate change is real as hell. And let's keep trying to minimize that as fast as we can, because it is upon us, folks. No, I just really appreciate y'all having me on again. It's been super fun. I always uh, enjoy digging into some of these movies that I haven't seen over the years and wish I could have. And so, yeah, it's it's been fun. And at least I can now uh, illuminate the world on Seymour Cassell and, and some of the great things that, that he's done for the... Uh, the independent film industry. Fucking Rodmaker wouldn't shut up at the party last night about this guy Seymour Cassell. It was unbelievable. Uh, man, it was great having you on, dude. I, I love when you're on. You're a blast. Yeah, it's always a good time, guys. Yeah, great. Thanks again, Mike. This was awesome. Thanks for joining us tonight. We always appreciate you all listening. Uh, if you made it this far, you can follow us on Twitter, Munson's at Movies. You can catch us on the Instagram, Munson's at the Movies. You can email us, Munson's at the Movies at gmail.com. Any final thoughts from Seymour Cassell? You shithead makes me wish I were 35 years younger. 35 years ago, I could have loaned your parents the money for an abortion. Munson's out. <sighs> all right, let's go. Thank you for the education, gentlemen. We've just received a PhD in stupidity. Doctor, shall we? Don't eyeball me, tough guy. When I was in the joint, I fucked guys bigger than you. What the hell are we waiting for? Hey, did Dirt just say he used to fuck guys?